chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick up with verse 35 as we continue to study Luke's gospel together. Beginning with verse 35, we read this, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, Are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Well, Jesus has been dealing with the sin of covetousness. He's described it as a perennial and pervasive temptation for all of us. And he's addressed how we deal with that. We saw this last week. Today, Jesus turns his attention, beginning in verse 35, to a different Topic, And he's addressing this issue of how we live daily as his disciples. Now, this is something that is really the umbrella over everything that he's been saying in these last chapters of Luke. He's been describing and discussing the issue of discipleship. But now he moves on to another element of discipleship, and he's especially concerned that his disciples live in such a way 
as to be ready for his return. He's particularly interested in, in, in encouraging his disciples to be good servants, good stewards. But he is specifically focusing in on his core group of disciples and their role as good shepherds of his sheep. He wants his people to live lives of mutual service, to care about one another, to spend themselves not for themselves, but for others. Not looking out for number one, as it were, but always constantly looking out for the family of God and living for their brothers and sisters. This may be what Paul had in mind when he wrote Philippians chapter 2. We're looking out for the family of God and living for our brothers and sisters, seeking the best interests of one another, spiritually speaking. So let's begin with a question. When you think about your life just to yourself, and you make assessment of how you're spending your time, where you're spending your money, where your focus is, where your energy is, what you really, really desire, what do your answers tell you about just how ready you are for the coming of Christ? That's the issue Jesus is raising in this passage. This is what he's addressing with his disciples. What he's not doing is asking them to become engaged in some kind of prophetic prognostication. He's not encouraging his disciples to try to figure out the timing of his coming. Now, Passages like this, really, virtually any passage that you can find in Scripture that addresses the coming of Christ, people will try to find clues in those passages. And some people will come up with very extravagant, very intricate formulations by which they think they can determine when Jesus is going to come. We've seen it over and over and over again. When I was in seminary, um, this is mid to late 80s, we had a uh, guy named Edgar Wisenut. I'll refrain from making any comment on the last part of his name. He had been an engineer of some sort with NASA, apparently. And he took it upon himself, I don't know where he got the funding, maybe he was independently wealthy, I don't know, but he took it upon himself to write a little booklet and have that booklet sent out to every pastor, every Christian worker across the country. And the title of the book was, booklet, I should say, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. I know you're wondering. He was wrong. Okay. 
And when he was wrong, he figured out what the problem was. Now, if you read through this booklet, of course, this, he's an engineer, and so he's got all these mathematical equations, and he's got all of these numbers that he's taken from Scripture, and he's done something to it, and he came up with this. Right? So he's an engineer, he's got all this mathematical background, and he's determined 1988, that's when Jesus is coming. But it doesn't happen, so what does he do? The next year, he sends another booklet out, 89 reasons, and you know what happened? This brilliant mathematician forgot to account for the year zero, so he just added another year. It was a bizarre thing, but it became right another one of those occasions for people to scoff and ridicule and mock which is the end result of every date setter that comes along. And this goes back throughout the history of the church, right? You come to the, the turn of the millennium. If you go back and you read about what happened when we went from you know, 999 to the year 1000, the same thing was happening then that you see happening today. People buy into these things and they think, well, a thousand's a nice round number. This is probably when Jesus is going to come. And they sell their homes and they quit their jobs and they go sit on top of a roof like the ancient Thessalonians did. 19th century, amongst American evangelicals and some British evangelicals, it became very popular to come to passages like this in the scripture, in the New Testament, where Jesus told his people to be ready and then to attempt to discover within them the timing of Jesus' return. Their response to Jesus' exhortation to be ready was somehow to try and figure out when it was exactly that Jesus was going to come again, in spite of the fact that in these same passages, he says, no one knows. He's coming at an hour you don't expect. And somehow, when people read that, they think, I can know. It's a strange thing. Right? I don't know. You know, there is, there, there is at some point, I think, some kind of theological dyslexia. <laughs> Where people are supposedly reading the same text that I'm reading, and they come to a completely different conclusion. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect... And somehow they determine that we can figure out the hour and expect him. It's a very strange thing. You, you read through this passage and you see these phrases, be ready, keep watch, be awake. It's not an exhortation for Christians to try to discern the signs of the times and determine whether or not Christ is coming sooner rather than later or know some kind of specific hour or day. The exhortations here are clearly designed to move us away from that kind of thinking and to be concerned 
not with the day or the hour, but to be concerned with living faithfully every day and every hour until Jesus comes. Jesus makes it clear that no one will know when he's coming. Verse 46 The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. Can't know the day, can't know the hour. Some have said you can know the month. (laughs) That's how some try to get around this. Well, yeah, I'm not predicting the day or the hour, but the month and the year, that's that's available to us. No, the, the whole point in this day and hour language is that we're not to be concerned with that. We can't know the day, can't know the hour, can't know the month, can't know the year. And here's a good kind of tip for you when you hear people putting forth dates. Verse 40, Jesus says, You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So if someone predicts a date, you can be sure it's not then. Jesus gives a series of pictures here to tell us what's really important. To tell us what it means to be ready. And you see several of them in the first few verses that we've read this morning. Look at verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. That's a very vivid word picture. And it comes from the practice of the ancient Near East, typically men, as one of their main garments would have a long flowing robe. Now it's a little hard to run in that So when you're getting ready to run, a man would hike that up. He would reach down between his legs. He'd get the back of the robe. He'd pull it up, and he'd tuck it in the front in his belt. And now I don't know what those things are called, but you've got, you know, I dream of genie pants on. They would look like, I'm guessing, right? But you're able to run now. So you're, you're ready for action. That, this is where the phrase girding your loins comes from. He's ready. And Jesus is saying, be ready. Be dressed in readiness. Stay dressed for action. Be ready for action at all times. It's not a word about trying to divine exactly when he's coming. It's about how you live until he comes. He even uses the language of being dressed to serve of himself later in the passages, we'll see. Being dressed to serve. It's, it's talking about an attitude that pervades the way that you approach life. That you're always ready to be serving the purposes of Jesus in this world. And then in the next part of verse 35, he uses another picture. He talks about keeping your lamps lit. Now in Jesus, in Jesus' day, of course, no electricity, no 
electric lights, so when the sun goes down, it's dark. No lights in your home, no street lights, no nothing. There's the moon and the stars, and that's your light at night. So you had to be prepared with your lamps if you wanted any kind of light at night. And you had to have plenty of oil for those lamps. You had to have your wicks trimmed. You needed to be ready to go. So when the sun starts to go down, before it gets completely dark, you can light your lamps and see something. He's talking about an attitude. You've prepared ahead of time for what you need. It's an attitude of life, prepared like being dressed in readiness, prepared to serve. He, he, he then changes the picture again. Look at verse 36. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. These people are expectantly waiting for the head of the house to come back from the wedding feast so that the minute that he comes into the courtyard, they are ready to spring to the door and welcome him home. I'm assuming none of us have servants waiting for us at home so that when we get there, They're looking out the window and ready to open the front door for us so we don't have to exert ourselves. But Jesus, of course, is giving the illustration of a wealthy man, a very prosperous man, a master who has been away at a feast. And he's got all kinds of servants. And this is someone who, when he comes, doesn't have to do anything, doesn't even have to turn a doorknob. His servants are there to open up and allow him to stroll into his home. And that's the expectation that this master has for his servants. Now, picture the master strolling up to the front door, but his servants haven't been watching. Now he's just kind of standing outside his own door, wondering where everybody is. How come my servants are not doing their job? All these pictures are pictures not of trying to divine the future, determining when Jesus is returning, but living in such a way now so that whenever he returns, We are ready. Whenever that happens. And it continues on into two blessings that he gives you in the next couple of verses. There are two blessings that are pronounced in verses 37 and verse 38. In verse 37 he says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. Now, Understand what's happening here. Who's girding himself to serve? The master is girding himself to serve. You get a little picture of the Last Supper here? That's what happened there. 
Not for the same reason, but that's the picture. You have Jesus there at the Last Supper. And the question I always ask when I come to that passage is, was there anybody there in that room who did not understand Jesus is the main guy? He's the master. Everybody knew that. And yet no one else there that night was willing to humble themselves to wash anyone else's feet. So Jesus did it. The master did it. The master girded himself and took the bowl and he took the towel and he washed all of those 24 filthy feet. And there's a similar picture here. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. And here's the similarity. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. And he will have them recline at the table. And will come up and wait on them. There is a reversal here. So we're told, here's another way that you're ready. You're awake first. You're not asleep at the switch. You're ready for him. You're doing your job. You're doing what you're supposed to do. The way that you're living has made you ready for his return. And then there is reward. There is blessing as a result of that. Then this blessing comes in verse 38. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And they are the the form that the blessing takes here is that the master becomes the servant. Which, of course, in one extremely important sense, has already happened. Jesus left his throne in glory, and he came down into this world, taking on the form of a man, was obedient to his father, humbling himself, even to the point of death on the cross. The master has already become the servant. But there is also a sense in which this will happen again, For those who are found faithful. So how how are you ready? What does readiness mean in this passage? Readiness in this passage means, especially as he's talking to his disciples, he's talking about those who are going to be commissioned to lead and care for his people, especially if we're going to apply it now in our day, pastors, elders, There is a mindset, an attitude, a practice of always looking out for the well-being of the flock. And for one another, it means a mindset, an outlook in which we are all determined to do the will of Jesus. That is our great concern in life, to glorify him, to live in such a way that his will is being accomplished in our lives. You notice that 
Peter asks one of those questions that teachers often hear from students. Verse 41, Peter said, whenever you see that phrase, Peter said, you're kind of just waiting for the shoe to drop, right? All right, what's he going to say now? Well, it's one of those kinds of questions that we should be familiar with. You know, the, the, you're, you're in class and the teacher is in the middle of what you know, he or she thinks is a brilliant and inspiring lecture and then someone usually from the back of the class, their hand goes up and what do they ask? Is this going to be on the test? Okay. The implication being, if it's not going to be on the test, I really don't care. And I don't want to waste my time learning something that I don't have to learn. And here's the teacher, you know, he thinks he's got all of the students on the edge of their seat, paying rapt attention, and all he hears is, is this going to be on the test? Well, that's Peter. Is this going to be on the test? Is this for us? Is this really important? Or is this just general stuff for everybody that we don't really have to pay too much attention to? Do I really need to be listening to this? Are are you saying this for us? Are you saying this for the benefit of your inner circle of disciples? Is this the really important secret stuff? Or is it just another one of those you know, one of those parables you tell the crowds, but you don't really intend them to understand. And the interesting thing here is that Jesus just ignores the question. Right? It's something you would expect a teacher to do in response to that question. Is this going to be on the test? And, I, you know, I just, I picture the teacher just shaking his head and carrying on. Because somebody who asks that question, (laughs) they don't want to learn anyway. Peter had so many problems in this regard. And Jesus just continues in what he was saying. Which may be an act of mercy toward Peter. Jesus could have just cut him down. And Jesus just says, no, I'm not going to get distracted from what I'm saying here. If Jesus had answered the question directly, I don't think it would have gone well for Peter. So we might see an act of grace in this. But notice Jesus is, it's very interesting the way he does respond. A, A lot of times when you ask Jesus a question, how does he respond? He responds by asking you another question. Usually that means that your question wasn't so good, so he's going to give you another question that is better, that you really need to consider and think about. Other times when Jesus is asked a question, he answers not by answering your question, but by saying something else that only looks tangentially related to what you have asked. Jesus has a purpose in what he's saying, in what he's teaching. And his purpose is not to respond to your agenda. His purpose is to communicate his agenda to you. 
Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, John 3. And Nicodemus begins this conversation with flattery. Jesus, we, we, we know you're from God. Nobody can do the things you do uh, unless God has sent him. And Jesus knows what's going on. And Jesus just ignores that entirely. Doesn't even acknowledge what was said. Just goes on to talk about being born again. Doesn't even say thanks for the compliment. Kind of rude when you read it like that. Completely ignores what Nicodemus says and says, listen, Nicodemus, you need to be born again if you can even want to see the kingdom of God. Jesus does not bow to our agenda. He is the Lord. He is the master. And so watch how Jesus answers questions because the way he answers questions always points you to the truth that he thinks you need to know. And that truth may not be in your question. How many, how many of us have, have said at some point, you know what, I cannot wait to get to heaven because I have all these questions that I want to ask Jesus. And why do we have to wait until we get to heaven? It's because the questions have not been answered. God has not given us the answer in his word. Which means what? It means it's not important. If it was important, God would have revealed it in his word. And he has not. But we get so caught up in the things that God has determined are not that important. And boy, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, you know, that's one of those areas where we just major on the minors. All the questions we have about the second coming of Christ are questions because God has not seen fit to make it clear in his word. There are certainly some things that are clear. Jesus is coming again. Amen. Amen? He's coming again bodily. And when he comes, there will be a resurrection of the living and the dead, of the wicked and the righteous. And there will be judgment, and the sheep will be separated from the goats, and this world will be transformed, and God's people will be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with God forever. And the wicked will be consigned to eternal damnation. All of that, that's very clear. That's right there. You go beyond that, things get a little bit murkier. Why? Because the things that we are curious about are not the things that are important. Have you ever had a conversation with with a brother or a sister and all they can talk about is eschatology? If you're not familiar with that word, the big word just means the end times, the coming of Christ. 
And that's all people want to talk about. And they have all of these ideas that they have worked out. And they've read all of these you know, books put out by so-called you know, prophetic teachers. And they've got all these you know, videos that they want you to watch and so forth. And it's like, wow. You know, there's a lot more in the Bible than that, brother. Have you read anything that doesn't have to do with the second coming? Well, look at what Jesus says in response to Peter's question. Who then is the faithful and wise manager? Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? Whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. All right, he's going to, to tell you who it is who is ready. So if Jesus is going to tell you now what it means to be ready, we ought to be listening. We ought not to jump down to anything that we might consider to be more interesting. Who is the one who is ready? Here's what he says. Who, he's the one who does what? He's the one when, the, when the, the, the master goes away, he gives to the household their food at the proper time. Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, verse 42, whom his master will put in charge of servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Now you understand, this is in some sense an answer to Peter's question, I suppose. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm going away, and in the hands of you disciples, I'm going to leave my sheep. And while I'm away, here's what I want you to do. I want you, remember what Jesus tells Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, after Peter denied him, after the resurrection, Peter, feed my sheep. Give them their ration." At the proper time. I want you to feed them the word of God, Peter. Don't worry about whether I'm speaking some kind of secret knowledge to you or whether this is for everybody. You listen to what I'm saying. When I go, you guys will be tasked with feeding my sheep. I want you to give them the means of grace. I want you to care for their souls. I don't want you to use them and to abuse them. I want you to serve them. I want you to always be thinking about them. I want you to be thinking about their spiritual well-being. I don't want you to be thinking about how to get rich off of them. I don't want you to be thinking about how to take advantage of them. I want you to live your life in such a way that you are feeding them, shepherding them, serving them, looking out for their well-being. That's what it means for you, Peter, to be ready. And Jesus uses very strong, striking language here in regard to those who are leaders and shepherds and teachers of his people. And it is language which you find elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Turn with me, for instance, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. I want you to see this here on the page, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. The author of Hebrews is giving an exhortation 
to his readers in a given church to obey their leaders, to submit to those whom the Lord has placed over them. And he says this in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. If one is a leader in the church, here is how they stay ready for the coming of Christ. They keep watch over the souls of God's people as those who will give an account. Here's how God's people stay ready for the coming of Christ. You obey your leaders and submit to them. Everyone has a role here. If we are going to be ready for Christ's coming, then in this respect, this is one of the ways in which we are ready. The author of Hebrews is saying, on the last day, those pastors and elders are going to stand hand in hand before the judgment throne of God and will give an account as to whether they have lived their lives in such a way that it was their prime concern that the flock of God was fed the word of God and was protected from spiritual wolves and served in their hour of need, was shepherded in their spiritual life. And I will confess to you, brothers and sisters, that is a huge burden. And it is a burden in which everyone who falls under that burden fails. And so it is also incumbent upon the people of God. Number one, to be gracious and recognize that your leaders are fallible men. But also to assist your leaders in fulfilling their responsibility by obeying and submitting to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So as Jesus is speaking to Peter and to the disciples... There are really two sides to this. There is what the leaders of God's people are to be concerned with, how they ought to live their lives in readiness for the second coming. But there is the other side of the coin as well. If they are doing that, then the ones that they are leading and teaching and shepherding are to do something else. The congregation of God's people is to be ready for the coming of Christ by obeying and submitting to their leaders. And when that is happening, then God is being glorified in his people. But this passage is not just for the disciples, as we've been saying. It's not just for pastors and elders. It's for all of us. You you see that most clearly at the very end of the passage. Look at verse 48. Halfway through verse 48, Jesus says this, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, 
Of him they will ask all the more. And Jesus is establishing a principle there, and now we see why he didn't answer Peter's question directly, because Jesus is speaking both to the disciples and for all. He had a specific message in these stories for his disciples and all those other pastors and elders who were going to be given charge to shepherd the flock of God. And that message was, I want you to be ready, and this is the way I want you to be ready, feed my sheep. Make sure they get the pure milk of the word. Make sure they are fed with the rich meat of the word of God. Protect them from the wolves. Shepherd their souls. While the world is only caring about what they can get out of those sheep, you be concerned to serve those sheep and to help those sheep and to build them up and encourage them. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. That's what he's saying to pastors and elders. But he's also speaking to every believer And the everyone is this. The message to everyone is that to whom much is given, much is required. How much have you been given? Everything you have, everything you are, It is what you have been given. Nothing that you have is yours. You are who you are because God has created you and redeemed you and gifted you. Have you been given much? You better believe it. I don't care how difficult your life has been. You have been given much. Now how then are we all to be ready like Jesus in this passage? Well, it is very clear how it is to be done. Not by looking out for ourselves, but being concerned with the well-being of one another. Notice how he describes the bad servant in this passage. Look at verse 45. If that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. And what does Jesus say? The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And so what are we called to do? We are called in the local congregation to live a life of self-renouncing love towards one another. We are to be self-giving towards one another. To love our brothers and sisters. But especially in the context of the congregation. To love by living a life of service toward one another. Let me just pause and say in specific application here, just to be very clear about this, we do not know when Jesus is coming. And there are people in and among 
God's people who when Jesus does come will face a judgment that is described here in verse 46 and their place will be assigned with unbelievers. Not that they are believers but are eventually assigned a place with unbelievers. They are unbelievers but they've been masquerading. They've been pretending to be servants, but they're not. And when their place is assigned, they will be assigned inevitably to the correct place. They may have looked like sheep at some point in their life, but when Jesus divides the sheep from the goats, they'll be on the goat side. Because Jesus is not fooled. Jesus knows the heart. Verse 47, Jesus is speaking of a servant who knew his master's will but didn't do it. Listen to what he says. That slave who knew the master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. What's going to be the basis upon which we are judged when the Lord comes? Did we, say, did we do what he said? It's exactly the language that we get in the Great Commission. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Most of you know this passage by heart, but just look at Jesus' words there as he tells his disciples how to make disciples. The end of chapter 28, verse 20. We'll start with verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So to make disciples, you teach people to observe all that Christ commanded. What does that mean? Turn that around. If you are a disciple, what are you going to do? You're going to observe all that Christ commanded. And if you do not observe the things that Christ commanded, you are not a disciple. It's as simple as that. So I ask you, are you ready? If Jesus says to you, are you ready? Are you living like you're ready for me to come again? Everyone needs to ask that question. By God's grace, he will enable us to answer that question honestly, with integrity. Yes, Lord, I'm living to serve you. I'm living to serve your people. I'm living to, to serve the lost by proclaiming to them your gospel of grace. But if you can answer it in that way, you can only answer it in that way by the grace of God. Because, brothers and sisters, by nature, we are a selfish people. We are. You know it as well as I do. We're constantly thinking about ourselves. And to change that mindset and put it on others... To do what Philippians 2 tells us to do, to put others before ourselves, that is a work that only the grace of God can accomplish in us. That is a supernatural 
change. By nature, we're thinking about ourselves. It's only the grace of the gospel that can liberate us to live for others, to live in the church for one another. And so I would encourage you, just as a final note of application as we close this morning, do what Paul exhorts us to do in so many places. Examine yourself. Where does your mind go? What does your life exhibit? If someone were to look at you, would they say, that's a person who cares about people. That's a person who's concerned for their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a person who's concerned that the gospel get out into the world. And it's evident in this way, in that way, in this way. And if that is true of you, Don't allow it to puff you up. Remember, it is by the grace of God that it is so. Rejoice in it and thank him and continue to live in readiness until that great and glorious day when our Savior comes and all of the struggles and trials of this world are over. Praise God. Father, thank you. Do it. Father, send your son. We pray with John, Father Jesus, come quickly, please. But until that day, Father, may we live for you. May we not think of ourselves, but Jesus first, Father. And in putting Jesus first, may we put others first as well. Father, for your glory we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.